welcome back for the second season of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. I'm Gary Naylor. Our guests this week are Pat Murphy, author and veteran BBC cricket reporter. Hello, Pat. Gary, hello. Good to be back. And great news that Mark Selleck has decided to resurrect the podcast and get the band together again. So thank you to our impresario. Yes. We've also got with us Peter Hayter, columnist at the Cricket Paper and Ghostwriter 4, amongst others, Ian Botham and Marcus Truscothic. Hello, Peter. Hi, Gary. How are you doing? And our third guest is Mike Selvey, former Chief Cricket Correspondent for The Guardian. Hello, Mike. Hello there, Gary. How are you? I'm fine, Mike, and I'm glad you are too. Before we begin, if I can say a big thanks to our sponsor, Mark Selleck, as Pat mentioned earlier, of Anderton Law. As some listeners may know, Mark is the creator of this podcast, so it was obviously great news in the summer when he told me he was keen to do another series. So thanks to him for choosing the topics, putting everything together, and of course, funding this podcast. This week, we're looking at the career of the much-loved wicketkeeper and much-admired artist, Jack Russell. And in our second innings, we'll focus on England's Ashes Tour of 1990-91. So we'll begin with Jack Russell. He played, somewhat to my surprise, I have to say, 54 tests, during which he took 128 catches and 12 stumpings. And he also played 40 ODIs for England in a long career at Gloucestershire. Pat, you've uh, you've literally written the book uh, on Jack Russell. Um, tell us a bit about the man behind the funny hat. Imaginative title, Gary. Jack Russell, colon, barking, <laughs> question mark. Peter Hayter had a lot to do at the start as well, handing the reins over to me. Good shout there but by Peter. He obviously he obviously thought to himself, there's only so many times I can sit in a darkened room but Jack listened to his stream of consciousness. <laughs> Eating cheese and pickle sandwiches. Oh, gosh. And uh, making sure that his Weetabix was 12 minutes doused in milk and giving the 12th man pelters. He must have been a nightmare for the 12th man. He was a singular man, Jack, wasn't he? He was very, very proud of being a scruffy little urchin from a council estate in Stroud coming through all the way through to doing so much. In many ways, he was a, a minor genius who could have been a, a major genius if he'd been allowed to have uh, played so many test matches. Jack encapsulated the whole problem about England in those days when they would quite like to play 12 players, if you don't mind, because his, his wicketkeeping was terrific. Of course it was. I personally think he should have got more runs uh, if he'd attacked more rather than getting in the bunker. But that was Jack's mentality. Uh, he only averaged 27. I think he was better than that. One of my favourite stories about Jack, though, is his, 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 his determination that nobody should know where he lived, apart from his agent and the chief executive of Gloucester County Cricket Club. And one occasion, he lived in the, in the paint, near Painswick, lots of kids. And one occasion, he had the builders in. And he would meet them a mile away in a lay-by, blindfold them, drive the truck in to his house, let them get working, and then drive him back to the lay-by at the end of the working day. And they never found out where Jack lived. That's classic Jack Russell. It's a team game. I mean, how did the players react to these eccentricities? I think they tolerated it because they knew Jack was exceptionally good at his craft. Gave him something to talk about, didn't it? He was a terrific team man in team meetings. He, You were never done wondering what Jack Russell had to say. And it was very much... <laughs> over my dead body, the, the partnership with Atherton and Johannesburg tells you all you need to know about what Jack Russell brought to the side. He took defeat very, very badly. I will say, though, and I wonder what Peter and Mike think about this, when you're looking for somebody to talk to you and you've been hammered yet again, 
and that was a regular occurrence on tour with England during that time. Jack Russell would invariably stand up and have something to say to you, which was very, very useful when you're looking for some uh, words from somebody to run back home. And uh, I always respected Jack for that. A lot of people can talk when they score the 100 in the test match at Lords or taking the test match hat-trick. Not many people will talk when you've been stuffed by an innings of 379. But Jack Russell was one of those. Uh, what, what kind of things did he say to you then, Peter? You were chasing a story then. Well, the, the thing that struck me most about Jack was that um, whatever the situation, if you wanted someone to go in to do whatever was needed for your life or his life, it would be him. I mean, he, he had limited uh, technical ability with the bat, but he tried so hard to improve himself. I mean, I remember in the second series he played in, because he had his test debut against Sri Lanka, didn't he, at Lords. Mm. The following year, 1989, was an Ashes series against a very strong Australian side. He played in the first test at Headingley and quite honestly thought he was out of his depth after that. He he was a bit bothered by the pace of Lawson and Hughes. So when he turned up for Lords to Lords for the next test match, he uh, asked Robin Smith to stand halfway down the net and throw balls at him. Not bounce them, not recreate batting conditions, but actually throw balls at him that he could duck or get out of the way of because he hadn't actually come across that kind of intense barrage before and the result was he an unbeaten 64 against that Australian attack in his uh, in his second test match and he got 100 uh, at Old Trafford in in the uh, I think it was the fifth of sixth test matches or the fourth of sixth 128 not out so he could bat in fact at that stage his test average was over 60 from his first seven or eight matches and he always blamed himself whenever the debate emerged, should it be Russell, especially this week, or, or should the gloves go to Alex Stewart? He very philosophically said, well, if I could bat better, that wouldn't be an argument. If I was better at batting, uh, they'd pick me. So instead of bemoaning the fact that this is the end of specialist week keepers as we know it, he would just say, well, it's down to me. I've just got to be better. And that's what he tried to be all the time. So a trier, absolutely, from his toes to the top of his horrible hat, that's what you got from him. Effort, commitment, determination, and criticism of himself if he didn't live up to the standards that he hoped for. Do you think he talked himself down, indeed talked himself out of international matches uh, with his kind of uh, concern about his batting? Because yeah, there was Alan Knott and there was Adam Gilchrist. He, he of course, Russell played before Gilchrist, sort of transformed the number seven position in a test lineup. But I don't think his batting was that weak. He made he made critical runs. I mean, he didn't have many shots. Everything was squeezed past a backward point. But um, do you think he talked himself out of a few caps? I suppose it's possible. But I, I think the problem was, as time went on, the issue became such a live one that he felt under pressure every time we went out to bat. Mm. And, and then he became a defensive batsman. I mean, he, he nearly saved a test match for England in Barbados on, that, on his first tour there. Which had they uh, had they secured the draw in Barbados, they would have uh, uh, they would certainly I think have got a drawn series out there. And then as time went on, he almost became buttonholed as this batsman who left the ball in an extraordinary way and and wound the bowlers up by leaving the ball all the time and just forgot to just carry on watching the ball and hitting the ball. He did have. Uh, as I say, extraordinary batting, battling determination. And maybe that got in front of the freedom and joy of actually, of actually hitting the ball. Of course, the innings for which, one of the innings for which he'll be most remembered is supporting Atherton in that extraordinary uh, 
effort to draw the test match in, in Johannesburg when he batted with Atherton for a couple of three hours, I think. Um, and uh, there again, he showed his eccentricity. Atherton would tell you that he loved Jack batting with him, but what he didn't like was that at the end of every single over, Jack went up to him and, and touched Atherton's pad. He got it into the habit that this was, <laughs> this was keeping the, the, uh, the partnership going. He was very superstitious. And Athos thought what, he didn't realise what he was doing initially. He, did, he just thought Jack was being a bit peculiar. But at the end of every over, they'd come together and Jack would walk up to him and grab him by the pad. And this went on for the, the entirety of the innings. And actually, Athos got quite narked about it because he, he just thought he wanted to concentrate on what was happening and not Jack doing one of his ex eccentricities and, uh, you know, possibly uh, getting in the way of the, 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 the batting. And, and Jack was a creature of habit and of eccentricity. Maybe he got himself in the mindset this is how he had to bat and stopped actually just batting. Well, it's hard to imagine either Gilchrist or Doney making sort of 29 not out of 235 balls, which is what... Uh, which is what Jack Russell did in the company of Michael Atherton at Johannesburg in 1995 to save a test match. But let's let's go to visit the other side of the uh, stumps. I mean, Mike, you've done a lot of uh, bowling to wicket keepers, stood a little further back than Russell preferred, of course. But um, what is it that made Jack Russell such a great keeper? Well, he just got wonderful hands, didn't he? You know, he he followed a, a great tradition of uh, of England keepers at that time. You know, one, you know, the very best would be Nottie and and Bob Taylor. They they'd be your benchmark and. Um, Jack was right up there. Um, it, just, it just got beautiful hands. The ball whispered into his gloves. And we do see a lot of keepers now, a lot of goalkeepers really, aren't they? They, they? they stand back. You know, A lot of keepers can stand back, but it's the ones who stand up who that's where you really see the craft. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and modern day we don't see it, actually. We see, we see it a little bit with, with Ben Folks. I see it a lot at Middlesex with, with John Simpson. You see it with Sarah Taylor, uh, who's as good as anybody. Uh, and, and Jack was, was right up there. You know, it doesn't have help as a bowler if you know the bloke's going to catch the ball for you. Uh, and especially the spinners, that's where, it really, that's where it really, really counts, when you really need a high-class keeper in conditions that are helping the spinners. And, and, and Jack was, was, was just a brilliant keeper. The stumping of Dean Jones at Sydney in that 1991 Test Series was fantastic because Jones used to love to move around the crease, didn't he? And Gladstone Small accidentally slipped one down the leg side. Jack standing up because Jones, he was looking at the stumping and he whipped the bales off. It was a fantastic piece of work. Jumped into the arms of Alex Stewart at square leg. That really summed up Jack Russell's craft. Soft hands as well. Beautiful mover. Yeah, I mean, in his late career, in particular in Gloucestershire's sort of golden period of success when they won six domestic one-day trophies in five years, Russell was very much the the leader of the fielding effort. He wasn't the captain on the field, but he was he was the leader, uh, I felt, behind the stumps. And as you've already indicated, uh, standing up to Gladstone Small, he'd stand up to all but the quickest bowlers. And he'd be aggressive, he'd be shouting, he'd be making the batsman uncomfortable in that phrase, I think, of Steve Wars. He, he made sure that the batsman knew he was not amongst friends. Why has nobody really, maybe apart from Sarah Taylor, why has nobody taken that approach to one-day cricket and being an a, a ultra-aggressive uh, vulture hovering it's over a, the It's stumps? an interesting question, that, Gary. And, and Jack, of course, didn't play T20s. Um, you know, it was 
pretty much yeah, before finished. his before yeah. uh, after his time. I can tell you I could tell you a story about T Twenty and why it might not have worked because I'm I'm with you. I I think crikey, you know why don't why don't they have the best keepers in this? Why don't they do what Jack did? I'll, I'll give you some uh, some stats which might surprise you. Right, this and this comes from a conversation I had with Andy Flower and. The average number of balls faced by a number seven batsman in a T20 match is seven, right? So my thinking was always, well, if that's all the number seven's going to get, what does number 11 get? He can't get many chances. Therefore, why don't you have, as you say, the best keeper who keeps, stands up and does that job for you? So four years ago, we were in Pakistan with a a World eleven playing Pakistan, and we had... 14 players there and we had three games and the only player after after two games who hadn't had a game was George Bailey. We'd had Tim Payne had been keeping wicket. So I said to Andy, you know, we'd had this conversation about why don't you have the best player keeping wicket all the time? And he, he said, on the other hand, he said, how many balls do you think the keeper takes in a T20 match? And I hadn't got a clue. Well, the answer's nine on average, nine deliveries out of 120 so we thought if you have a player who bowls wicket to wicket, we had a player called Samuel Badry. If you have a player who bowls wicket to wicket, maybe you don't even need a keeper, right? <laughs> and then we thought, well, that doesn't make sense because they just run down the pitch at him. So that was a non-starter. However, George Bailey had to have a game in this match. And the only way we could get him in was if he kept wicket instead of Tim Payne. Now, George Bailey had never kept wicket in any level in his life. And his first experience with the gloves was in a one-day international against Pakistan. How many balls do you think he took in that game? Well, I'll tell you, the answer was five, of which two were leg-side wides. So you can see why the keeper isn't as important in T20 as you think he might be. So maybe Jack wouldn't have had that opportunity or wouldn't have looked so good in T20 cricket. But obviously in, in, uh, in ODI cricket and in one-day cricket for Gloucestershire, he was supreme. And, and I'm, I'm still at the, at the camp that you do need your best keeper doing that job. It it's it's, can only be a benefit, in my view. Jack had the, the great advantage of, of being both gobby, not really giving a stuff what the opposition thought about him, so strong mentally, but also brilliant at his craft. There's no point in shouting your mouth up all the time if you're shelling the ball out like peas and if you're a long stop with pads on. But, but, so not many people at that time had Jack's expertise as a keeper. So in that sense, he was a one-off because temperamentally he was perfect and also technically he was outstanding. And he couldn't sledge Jack. He absolutely no. loved it. He fed off it. No. He, he hated it when people were nice to him. Surrey used to wind him up by calling him Robert, which is, uh, <laughs> was his real first name. He hated it, and, and uh, they couldn't get under his skin at all until one day uh, they were playing at the Oval. And um, do you remember David Ward? He used to yeah. play for Surrey. Yeah, Oh, yeah. He had, a lot of, he had a lot of teeth, David Ward, and he was fielding under the lid at short leg, and Jack was sort of growling at everyone on the field, came into bat and trying to get, get under everyone else's skin. And he looked at short leg and Wardy was wearing one of those comic relief red noses <laughs> under, the, uh, under the helmet. <laughs> and, he started, and Jack started laughing. He, he couldn't get back into the innings at all. I think he was out for about four or five, caught, caught behind. He just wanted to fight everyone all the time. It's, it's like a Jack Russell Terrier. Very actually. much. And, uh, and don't forget Jack's fascination with military history. Massive totally. respecter of the armed forces, often in the Imperial War Museum visualize the situation he once jumped out of a trench 
in the Imperial War Museum frightened the life out of a bunch of Japanese tourists who were absorbed in the scene and then walked off. But Jack would happily invoke all that military history stuff and all that uh, excessive patriotism uh, when, he, when, he, when he was playing for England. It was just meat and drink to him. We've done a lot of paintings too, hasn't he? Military paintings. Yes, yeah. 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 David Norrie and I, uh, David of the News of the World, and when I was on the Mail on Sunday on, this, on the tour to South Africa, we took him to Rourke's Rourke Drift. Drift. Mm. And Isandwana, which he was longing to see, he was fascinated, as you say, by military history and those old stories. You know, the film Zulu with Michael Caine and yeah. Stanley Baker was about the Rorts Drift and the, the, the action there. And uh, there's a museum at Isandwana, which is not much of a museum. It has a sort of a map of the battlefield. And then in the corner, there was a uniform worn by, supposedly, one of the British soldiers. And uh, he asked the curator of the museum if he could put it on to be photographed by the photographer who was with us. And he was photographed charging at the camera with bayonet fixed on a <laughs> rifle, wearing the red tunic and the white hat of the soldiers that were at uh, Rorts Drift in Zintuana, virtually shouting, they don't like it up and <laughs> Extraordinary bloke, uh, steeped in all that. And, of course, his association with the guys who did the raid on Saint-Nazaire mm. uh, still continues. He's painted them and he's... Um, always invited to their reunions, or was. I'm not sure there many of the guys left there now. But, um, you know, it was all part of him and what made him tick and what made him be so belligerent at the wicket, I think. I, I innocently mentioned just once in passing, he was talking about military history, that my father won the military medal twice. And Jack just pumped me for the rest of the day. We were working on the book. I said, Jack, I'm supposed to be interviewing you. There's at least so much I knew. <laughs> about what my old man had done before I was even born. But Jack was fascinated by all that. I mean, was he was he a thinker about the game as well? Because he was certainly the first wicketkeeper I can recall who regularly wore the shades. And it wasn't because they were sponsored. It's just because he preferred keeping in the uh, in the dark glasses. Prior to that, I, I don't recall wicketkeepers. Maybe there was the odd fielder. But did his singular approach to life um, leach out into uh, wicketkeeping? I think I think some of his um, some of his idiosyncrasies were idiosyncrasies for the sake of having an idiosyncrasy. Um, a lot of there's always this comparison with Notty, the obvious comparisons, and and actually, if you talk about Notty, everything Notty did had a purpose. It was always a result of something happening to him. So, so for example, he back in the days when you had shirts with cuffs and, and, and uh, and buttons and stuff, he, he would always cut the buttons off his sleeves and tape them up loosely with tape because once he tried to reach a high ball and his shirt restricted him, so he cut it off. Mm. He taped around his pads because once he caught his glove on a pad and it stopped him collecting a ball. You know, he, he, wore, he always wore a, um, a hoodie because he didn't want to get a stiff neck. He always wore, he wore glasses, he wore shades a lot of the time because he didn't want to hurt his eye. Okay. Everything had a purpose. And I, and I think some of Jack's things, did, they were just Jack, they were just Jack being idiosyncratic for no reason, I think. There was a big standoff in the Caribbean in 98, wasn't there, when uh, the start of the series was overshadowed by Jack refusing to wear the new headgear. He insisted, the hat, on, yeah. he insisted on wearing his, own, his old flower pot hat. And uh, it got really rather silly. And Jack at one stage said, well, I'm not playing then. It was, it was classic Jack Russell. And Sal's right. There, there seemed no real point for Jack to be banging on about a hat, for God's sake. Do you know how the hat died? You know, you know how the hat it was died? tea cosy, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he, the hat died because uh, he put it in an oven. Yeah. Uh, it got wet. <laughs> and he tried to dry it. So he put it in the oven and, and it disintegrated. It, it, it turned into ashes. 
His hat. <laughs> the ashes. Jack's hat. Jack's ashes. It's the secret. It's the ashes. Have you said all that, you know, I wish every England player at that stage was as interesting as Jack Russell. Because sure. he, was a, he was a character study all of his own. There was nothing monochrome about Jack. There was all, he always had something to say. Yeah. He he had he was idiosyncratic with his diet as well, wasn't he? Of oh. course, obviously the, we know about the Weetabix and the the the, the tea bag that he reckoned he could get fifty cups yep. out of each one, and then I think it was Angus Fraser who who said that um, when he was in uh, on on tour in Australia uh, for the Ashes Test in Perth that Jack went to the same Chinese restaurant every night ordering chicken with cashews <laughs> without the cashews. <laughs> and, Basically, where he, wherever he went, it was chicken, and it was normally cremated. Uh, he had and, and cheese and pickle sandwiches. Yeah. I don't think I've ever eat, seen him eat anything other than cheese and pickle sandwiches and chicken. I'm not sure he ever has. To can, be you, can you imagine rooming with Jack on an England tour? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, and of course, when they did, this was how uh, things changed for the England team when in Zimbabwe yeah. uh, in '97. Uh, Jack was sharing with, I can't remember, I think he shared with Tuffers once and other people, and they all shared rooms. And in the end, it, they just had enough of it because Jack used to wash all his kit and have it you know, strung up in the room mm. with his tea bag stuck on a, a, on a nail to dry out for the next day. But the place was littered with Jack's <laughs> keks, basically, socks and underwear and job straps. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and Lord McLaurin, Ian McLaurin, who was in charge of the Teston County Cricket Board before it became the ECB, I think, was on, on that tour to see what conditions were like for the troops. He, he knocked on the door, opened the, room, opened the door of Jack's room, whoever he was sharing it with, saw this and said, that's it. From now on, the players are having their own rooms. And, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So we'll, we'll finish off this uh, section on Jack Russell just with a uh, question that, um, that really looks at his career after uh, cricket because he didn't go into coaching and he didn't go into media although he he has been interviewed many many times but he he took up painting and um it's more than a hobby isn't it it's a it's a profession for him now it all started at worcester in 1987 on a rainy day uh, rained off for the day jack walked over the bridge bought some pencils got some paper and sat down by Brown's restaurant alongside the cathedral, just sketching people walking past. And then he went on the Pakistan tour as number two keeper that winter. And he said the light was absolutely fantastic. And he came back with some sensational pencil sketches of beggars. Well, Mike and Peter know Pakistan is a remarkable place to tour. Kaleidoscope of colour and excitement. And thereafter, Jack was absolutely hooked. And I'm no expert on these sort of things, but the things I've seen Jack come out with since he's retired, they're pretty good to my um, untutored eye. His stuff sells for a lot of money as well, by the way. He's, he's a very successful commercial artist. I mean, just imagine having a latent skill like that yeah. and, and discovering it by happenstance, a rainy day in Worcester, you know? I, I think it's wonderful. I remember those sketches, Pat, in Pakistan mm. that he did. They, yeah. they, were, they were stunning pieces of work. He said he's never um, seen better light anywhere, Mike, for painting. No. I mean, he probably didn't have any experience of it at that stage, True. of course, did he? But, but yeah, I, I mean, I sat with him once, not so long ago, last year, I think, it might be a year before, at Merchant Taylor's School. He was, he was there watching Middlesex, and uh, I was talking to him about his painting, and I said, you know, Jack, what I can't do, I really have no idea. If I look at something, I can't visualise all the different colours. I can see them, but I can't think what they are. You know, the, that tree there is green to me. 
And he sort of kind of took me through the process of, of analysing how, you know, minutely, well, that's, that tree there, that's got light green in it, and then mm. that's got a more apple green, you know, and he went through the whole thing with me. And it's a little bit like Sherlock Holmes, you know, you, you see but you don't observe. Mm. And, and uh, you know, that skill, to have that skill, I'm, I'm so envious of somebody who can do that and, and to be able to draw like Jack does and paint like Jack does and then make a living out of it that he might never have even thought of, say, but for that rainy day. Mm. I think his, I think his, some of his later work, I mean, I, I love the paintings that he's done all the cricket grounds, and, of course, we've all seen them. But I, I went to visit him last year or the year before, I think, to do a piece of the cricket paper, and he showed me the most recent stuff. And it's, it was commemorating the, the, the end of the First World War. And some of the paintings he's done of the, of the soldiers going over the top on misty, dark mornings, you know, you're actually there. I mean, oh, that's a very impertinent thing for me to say, and ridiculously inappropriate, but you look at the painting and you can sort of... There's a feeling that you get from those paintings of what those people must have been thinking and, 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 and going through on, on, those, uh, on those terrible days. And he has captured it perfectly. I, 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 I don't think I've ever known a sports person more respectful of that kind of aspect of our life in the UK, the armed forces, etc. He really is tremendously authoritative and respectful of those people. And you, never know, you never have to wonder where Jack Russell is at 11am on Remembrance Sunday. And uh, I, I think that's admirable. And he's just such a different, different character. And um, he just dances to a different drum. And I wish they were more like Jack Russell in sport. Yes, indeed. I mean, that sounds a, a good point to, to finish off this uh, section on, on Jack Russell. Um, it's a cliche to say he was an artist with the gloves, but he was in both senses an artist with the gloves. And I suspect those of us who sit on the other side of the boundary watching cricket, we probably miss Jack Russell for all the reasons that we've explored over the last 20 minutes or so, perhaps more than any other England player of, of the past, um, because he, he was there was just nobody quite like him. And he represents a, a part of the game that or aspects of the game that are disappearing with the the artistry, with the specialised role of, of the wicketkeeper, and uh, a singular man finding his place in a team sport. To the second innings of this, the first episode of Season 2 of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. We're looking at England's tour down under in 1990-91, the bald facts of which are that they lost 3-0 in the Ashes and won only two, both matches against New Zealand, in the ODIs. So it looks like another shellacking at the hands of the monstrous Australian machine that was uh, gearing up at that time. But when you dip below the surface, there was actually quite a bit more going on and all was not as bad as it seemed, albeit the outcomes were. Um... Peter, it's a memorable winter for you in uh, in lots of ways. Well, yes, it was a memorable winter for me. Most memorable, I have to say, on a personal level, because um, I was actually in Melbourne when my first son was born in Shrewsbury in Shropshire, about 10,000 miles away. In those <laughs> days, there was no question of players going home for the birth of their children, nor was there any question of that happening for journalists, and uh, didn't really occur to us that that was kind of thing you were supposed to do or, or should do at uh, different times. The paper very generously flew me home 
after my son was born uh, and then came back out to Australia for the rest of the tour. That aside, it was a fascinating uh, series for me. It was my first overseas Ashes series. I've, I've covered the 89 series in England, which was uh, even more disastrous than this one. Uh, and had gone to Australia open-minded open, uh, and wide-eyed. I thought what a fantastic place this was to, to watch cricket and to play cricket and to soak it all up. Uh, and with some degree of optimism that an England side with Gooch and Gower and Lamb and Robin Smith and Jack Russell and Angus Fraser and Devon Malcolm would put up a, a decent fight against an Australian side who, although they'd won the previous Ashes, you could see ways that they could they could be taken on. And this was before the invention of Shane Warne, of course. That's another kettle of fish waiting for them uh, down the line. But from from the start, it was it just seemed to be one of those tours when things went wrong. Uh, obviously, the injury to Gooch, ruling him out of the first test match, and other disappointing things happening. And the, the detail of the tour was, was played out in the context of a sort of a struggle for the soul of the England side. How should England play test cricket? Should they play it like Graham Gooch, fit, leaving no stone unturned in, in practice and everyone facing the same way? Or can you play like Gower, who doesn't want to practice, doesn't want to train, but just is a sublime talent? And that little struggle was going on in the background throughout the tour and resulted in one or two interesting episodes, such as the Tiger Moth, uh, incident and others, and ended in a tour at, at the end of which uh, Geach remarked, uh, interestingly, that um, uh, watching his players try and take on Australia in this way was a bit like um, farting against thunder. I think those were his words. <laughs> it did seem like that by the end. Can I just explore that a little further, Peter? Because um, looking back, I mean, that was that was kind of obviously it's become a part of kind of England folklore, the kind of culture war, if you call it these days, between Goochism and Gowerism. Where where the the media are aware that this was going on and where the Australian team, were they aware that there was this struggle for the soul, as you so eloquently put it? I think so. I mean, I, it, it, this, this struggle had begun the previous winter when England went to West Indies uh, without Gower and without Ian Botham and with a young side players like David Capel, uh, God rest his soul, and mm. um, uh, other youngsters, Nasser Hussain and others. Uh, and Gooch tried to imprint on that side his work ethic uh, with the help of the coach, Mickey Stewart, and they nearly pulled off a, a significant result in the West Indies. They lost in the end 2-1, but were extremely unlucky. And I think Gooch took that as the blueprint from then on. It, it sort of worked. And if they were going to have any chance at all in Australia... They had to be, they had to have the same intensity. They had to feel like demons. They had to bowl tight. They had to bat as though their lives depended on it. And they had to practice. And they didn't have to go uh, to wineries and spend days off relaxing, doing this, that, and the other. They had to be uh, hard-headed, professional, and remorseless in their approach. And of course, if there's one thing, David, all of those things are <laughs> not what David Gower is. And then you had a vice-captain in Alan Lamb who was sort of torn between the two of them because he was very supportive of Gooch and Gooch's methods, but he's also Lamb's best mate. So when it came to that uh, struggle between the two of those, Lamb was sort of stuck in the middle. And players didn't quite know who to go with. I mean, players like Angus Fraser, who was very much of the Gooch uh, methodology, and Alex Stewart and others like that were right behind Gooch. 
And then you had others in the squad like John Morris, who had to co-pilot that Tiger Moth with Gower. Uh, let's say Phil Tufnell as well, and uh, who who maybe didn't see those disciplines as absolutely vital to to success. So it was a it was a it was a squad that didn't really seem to be facing the same way, all of them at the same time. I think the press picked up on that. It was quite obvious after a while with one or two leagues that went on that uh, there was all wasn't uh, well at the mill. And uh, the Aussies obviously will will, will waste, waste no time in um, turning something like that situation to their advantage. I think it became more obvious in hindsight, in retrospect, looking back on the tour and how it how, what actually happened. But at the time, there was certainly conflict within the ranks. And... Um, England needed everything to go absolutely right. They needed to be fit. They needed Gooch not to have a, a finger injury that required an operation. Uh, they needed Lamb not to uh, miss a couple of tests. They needed Fraser to be at top fitness and top form all the way through, which he wasn't because he was trouble with his hip. And because of those things, Australia just en- ended up being too strong for them. Mm. Let's let's look at that first test. It's in it's in Brisbane at the Gabattoir. Gooch is out with the finger injury, as you've mentioned there. Alan Lamb is captaining, but... England start pretty well, really. They make 194, Gower 61, um, the Aussie seamers uh, sharing the wickets. And then England's four-man attack of Malcolm, Fraser, Small and Lewis run through the Aussies for 152. And then Terry Alderman, um, so often the scourge of, of England batsmen, he takes six wickets, shoots out England for 114, and Marsh and Taylor do the Marsh and Taylor thing and cruise to a 10-wicket win. Mike, why did why did the seamers, and particularly why did Alderman, the, the kind of, in my mind, almost the least Australian Australian seamer that I've seen, um, why was he so irresistible to English batsmen? He was a, good, he's a, a terrific bowler in, uh, in Perth, Western Australia. I mean, he, would, he could swing the ball. He bowled him very tight, close to the stumps. He, he, he swung the balls, bowled it down the line, bowled wicket to wicket. He was a very difficult um, proposition. That was, a, that was an extraordinary game, really, because that was a defeat from the jaws of victory for England again. It, it's been reflected. It's very similar to a game we had much more recently where we bowled Australia out cheaply and we, we thought we'd got the, the game... In the, in the bag already, and of course they came back very strongly. But this one's almost anomalous, isn't it, with the scores uh, and, and a 10-wicket win at the end of it for Australia. The thing that really peaked uh, for England, or not peaked with a QU, was what happened with the, the, the Lamb and the Jupiter's Casino event, which was, you know, that became a, a reason for it rather than an incidental, if you like. You know, this... this the idea where where Alan Lamb decided he was not out overnight and uh, decided to go off to Jupiter's Casino in the, on the Gold Coast, fifty miles away, with for a nice quiet evening with David Gow, Tony Gregg, and, and Kerry Packer. Uh, you know, it's a low-profile <laughs> evening, isn't it? If ever you wanted one, and uh, says he was back by twelve o'clock. Now I, you know, I'm I'm very abstemious and, and, and go to bed early and uh, but but so, some of my colleagues are night prowlers and I'm not sure that they were saw anybody coming in at midnight but um, of course the difficulty was that Lamb was not out overnight he was captain in that match and was out the first over next morning and it really wasn't a very good look and and it went downhill that test match from there and then as I say a 10 wicket win was was almost anomalous one of the other reasons why that was a memorable tour for me was I made a complete and utter fool of myself in the newspaper because um, I, I, I hadn't worked out the, the, the thing about the time difference in Australia. So, uh, obviously, uh, 
the way the match had gone, uh, England had batted first and been bowled out of 194. Uh, and then, you know, the Aussies were saying, here we are, more horizontal ponds. England then bowled out Australia for 152, so had a lead of 42, was it, on the first innings? England then went into bat and were 40 or the two, I think, not out overnight, or 50 for two overnight. 56 for three, yeah. That's it. So they actually had a lead of about 100. So they were 100 for three, effectively. So I've written in my piece how all those, you know, here's one for you, Aussies. You thought you'd got us on the ropes. But the boys are back. Uh, and, of course, with this look at the scoreboard of effectively 90 or 100 for three, they did have a decent chance, especially having bowled Australia out in the first innings for 152. And then, of course, that piece was filed for the newspaper. And by the time people were reading their morning newspapers, England had been bowled out for 114, and Australia had got the required 156 for no wickets. <laughs> so people were reading their newspapers, and my report saying, this is it, this is what we've come for. England have got them on the run. And then the people reading the newspapers were thinking, hang on, I've just heard on the radio that we've lost the match by 10 wickets. So I very quickly realised, with, with the time difference in Australia, it's not good at any stage to uh, predict what's going to happen in a match. Because you're just it's going to an easy journalistic it. lesson, that one, isn't it? It's for a few people learn that one. You never, ever, ever throw it on. You can only comment yeah. from, from Australia exactly. and New Zealand. And you're going to look days out of date, but there's nothing you can do about it. Anyway, no. so... Uh, that's you know that, that Jupiter's Casino story was interesting as well, in as much as uh, none of us knew about it until about 24 hours later that uh, Gower and Gooch had, had been in the casino with Kerry Packer and Tony Gray, and actually that same night I'd been there in Jupiter's Casino on the Gold Coast. <laughs> uh, Gower and Lamb had been in a private room with Packer and Tony Gray. I, I was in the, the in, in the main hall losing my money while they were doing what they were doing. So on two counts, I did a fantastic job for the Mail on Sunday. Not only did I write a completely wrong story about how the, how the match was going, I also happened to be in the same casino in Lamb and, as Lamb and Gower <laughs> and didn't know that I was. So uh, I'm very surprised I actually managed to hang on to the job for as long as I did, to be fair. Was a casino trip like that, was, was that the kind of thing that always went on, but that the media would stand back a little bit. I mean, one hears stories of Dennis yeah. Compton and I'm sure plenty of, of others uh, on tours and indeed during home test matches. Or was it the tide turning after, I think Francis Edmonds wrote that uh, tell-all story, didn't she, about a tour, uh, Another Bloody Day in Paradise, it might have been called. But um, was there a turning point there? Or It already turned with, uh, with Beefy, hadn't it, with Ian Botham, really, back in the day. But it... There was certainly still stuff that went on that was kept in house by, you know, by journalists because journalists realised and, and uh, you know Peter had a very close relationship with, with with players. It was part of his job, and you know you you didn't compromise that relationship for a for a story that might just end your relationship. You relied on the relationship, so it did keep things in house a bit. I hasten to add, I wouldn't have written about, about them, Gower and Lamb. No, no, that's the thing, even isn't if it? I had seen them. They were just—they were doing their thing, and I was doing my thing. I was actually in another casino in Adelaide when somebody, Pat Gibson of the the Sunday Express, came to tell me that Gooch was out of the out of the forthcoming match, having had the operation. Good old Pat. I was in the casino. I've done my day's work. By the way, I wasn't in the casino all the time. I just happened to be in the <laughs> casino those two times, 
And Pat Gibson came to find me, supposedly my deadly rival. I was on the Mail on Sunday, he was on the Sunday Express. He said, you've got to come back and file something. <laughs> Gooch is out of the test match. And uh, it was like three in the morning. I thought, okay, uh, did that actually happen? And I went, and of course, three in the morning in Adelaide is still afternoon back in England on a Saturday. So I've still got plenty of time to file my report. It was a different way of doing things in yeah. those days. And, and I hasten to add, it was my own money I was spending in the, in the casino, not the expenses from the Mail on Sunday. Let's let's move to the second test, which had a lot of parallels, actually, with the first. Another England first innings lead, but then they collapse in the second innings, going from 103 for one to 150 all out. Bruce Reed, left arm, spindly, very fine bowler. Uh, the destroyer was 7 for 51, and then Australia run out easy winners by eight wickets. Peter, what's your, uh, what's your recollection of the MCG test? Uh, I remember... England batting pretty well in the first innings. It was not very easy conditions. Gow got 100. Very nice innings. Wayne Larkins got 50, I think, and Alex Stewart also 50. So they were set up pretty well. And uh, it was a nice response to what had happened in the first test match. You know, a team without any spirit or guts, you know, might have been expected to roll over, well, not roll over, but find it hard to get back into the series at that stage. But they did. I mean, there wasn't a, a match winning score of 350 odd, but it was enough. To, to have a game and of course they did as you say have first innings lead of 40 odd and then another collapse uh, as they had done as you say in the first test from which you don't recover I mean the, the Reed was um, what was he 6 for 8 I think he was and he'd come back from injury and I don't think England had prepared for they had no one I don't think in England to give them any, any practice or preparation for a 6 for 8 left armour coming over the wicket and on Australian pitches, and in the second innings, they just couldn't cope. Larkins and Gooch got runs, but I don't think anyone else got double figures, did they? Uh, and Reed ran through them. So, unfortunately, having uh, and of course they missed Lamb in that match, didn't they? Who might have made a difference because he he had a, quite a liking for Bruce Reed. I remember him getting runs off him in a one-day international, eighteen and over, I think it was. Yeah, last um, year. Yeah, he he got injured in Ballarat, running back from the ground in Ballarat, which is the the game between the two Test matches, and uh, so he was out um, for the second and the third Test match, in fact. And you know that was one thing I remember about the MCG then was they demolished the Great South Stand. They were about to rebuild the Great South Stand. So there was this big, big gap in the stadium there. It wasn't enclosed anymore. I don't know whether that changed the atmospherics in the ground at all. Maybe it did. It was certainly a different ground. Um, another thing I remember is how the weather changed, actually. we were In those days, we were in a very small, very heavily air-conditioned uh, press box. And I can remember going in there on a, a Melbourne... They're quite a sort of almost like a spring-like day in Melbourne, in, in old money in the sort of upper 60s, early 70s, in a jumper and sitting in this air-conditioned box. And in the distance, because there was no south stand there anymore, in the distance there was one of these towers with the digital readouts on it, the clock and the temperature and that. And I looked at this thing later on, and it, I thought, it's gone wrong, it's gone wrong. And I come, the temperature went up in the course of the session from 68 degrees Fahrenheit to 110 and the wind had the wind had turned around completely coming off the interior rather than the exterior and and you know it was it came out of that room out of that press box into the mcg and it was like opening an oven door it was remarkable i tell you two other things i remember which was the um, the australia's attempt to entertain the crowd in between and before play in between <laughs> sessions and before play they had this uh, they decided to introduce the world to gaitus the wonder whippet 
who was a whippet who caught a frisbee in his teeth. Or rather failed to catch the, the frisbee within his teeth. This poor bloke was sending the frisbee towards Gaitus the Wonder Whippet, who would then jump up and attempt to clasp his jaws around this frisbee. I think he got one out of ten. And with each attempt, the guy on the microphone, on the PA, was his increasing desperation for the crowd to give Gaitus all the support they could. Poor old Gaitus, by the end, was, he was a broken whippet. And then we had the other, uh, the other side of um, a lot of uh, Australian male athletes having a race against an Australian female athlete who was given like a 70-yard start, 70-metre start, as they ran round the outfield of the MCG. And someone in the press box uh, reckoned that it, it should. this was a new sport that uh, the Australians was, were introducing to the public called Chase the Sheila, because it, it did rather look like this poor lady was being run after by a lot of bruises. They <laughs> finally like a handicap race for them. Handicap race, yeah, Chase the Sheila. There were so many different um, uh, efforts they made to entertain. There was, a, there was a, a kite flying exhibition in Perth, I think, one time. There's huge kites, and this poor bloke couldn't control it. They dragged him from one side of the, of the, <laughs> the wacker to the other. And, and the giant, um, was it Milo? Do you remember with the giant, oh, yeah, giant yeah. balls trying to bowl down these huge stumps? <laughs> it, it was yeah. bizarre, the things they tried to do. Yeah, well, shame they weren't around for the hundred, those guys. <laughs> well, it took, away, it took away the, um, the disappointment of what Mickey Stewart described as the 50 minutes of madness. Yeah. Which cost them the game. You said nine for 47 they lost on the fourth evening. Six for three. Six wickets for three. You know, and that was that was the end of it. Bruce Reed back after four years, I think he'd been out with his back injuries. Uh, and, and he just destroyed England. And, uh, and again, it was a, a romp for Australia from a position where England had controlled the game for a little bit. Well, that was significant, wasn't it, about the thing, you know, it wasn't... The England didn't have their chances in this series. They weren't completely out of play. They actually bossed a couple of games at the start yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, it couldn't drive home the uh, the advantage. And uh, well, let's move to the SCG and the kind of player that that Australia have often sort of pointed at England and said they are. You're not going to beat us if you keep picking these bits and pieces player. Uh, Greg Matthews, a bits and pieces player, uh, recalled after four years, hits a century from number seven. Australia pile up 518, England reply with 469 for 8, tons for Adderton and Gower. Australia collapse in their second innings, but we run out of time and the Ashes is uh, is staying in Australian hands. It looks like a kind of straightforward draw from this distance, but it seldom is at Sydney. What was it like, gentlemen? Well, the Greg Matthews thing was really interesting, wasn't it? Because he was picked on the for, for his off-spin bowling, really. I mean, he just got... I think he'd just taken 20 wickets in three games in the Shield before that. And he came in and he, and he appeared nowhere in their batting averages at that stage of the season. And here he was batting England out of the game with a, with a, with a 100 from number seven, as you say. I, I, I did a, uh, a talk once a couple of years ago with him uh, talking uh, Q&A with MCC members. And they couldn't make head or tail of this bloke. You can imagine the demographic. But he talks jive talk to them all the time. Yeah. He calls them cats. You imagine yeah. calling MCC members in their ties there cats. You cats, you don't understand the game. It's a strange cove, I think. Yeah. But 128, number seven. 
he hijacked a press conference once that Graham Boots was giving. I think it was in, uh, on the next tour, actually. I, I might have even been talking about his retirement or something, Gooch. And uh, Greg, Greg Matthews decided to come in and, and, and take part in the press conference and sat down next to Gooch and started ask, uh, seeing, asking if anyone had any questions. And then he started talking about uh, his new tie-up, sponsorship tie-up with a hair transplant company. Um, <laughs> who had done his head very nicely. He kept pointing at his hair and winking at people. Uh, <laughs> absolute madman, Greg Matthews. Never changed. The, the things I, I can remember about that game, I mean, there were, there were hundreds from, uh, from Gower, who, who was a very fine hundred from him, and uh, from Adders, which was, uh, I think, the, the, the slowest hundred ever scored in, in, in Nash's test at that point, <laughs> which, uh, you know, took some doing, didn't it? Uh, it was certainly the slowest first-class innings ever, 100 at, uh, at the SCG. The other thing about that game which did cost England a chance was, was Carl Rackman with the bat. In second innings, he batted the 32 overs for nine. It took him 72 minutes to get off the mark. And England bowled spin at him all the time and he couldn't play, he couldn't play pace. And the Devon Malcolm didn't get a bowl to him. And I don't know if there was some talk about whether Gooch was worried about Malcolm's back or something like this. But it, he didn't bowl to him, and eventually when Devon did bowl to him, he got him out straight away. But that cost England 32 overs, pretty much, because that was Carl Rackman couldn't bat his eyelids. Was he worried about the light? Was Gooch worried about the light with him? I don't think so. I don't think so, because he brought Devon on in the end, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. And it was remarkable, because we were sitting in there saying, put Devon on, you've got to bowl yeah. Devon at this bloke, and he blocked and blocked yeah. and blocked. Tough has nearly got a hat trick, don't forget. Um, he did, that's true. Yeah. Gower just uh, tipped one away, didn't he? He got Boone and Border out, didn't he? And then um, Gower couldn't hold on to one from oh, whoever that other third batsman was. I can't remember. He, now, he but, just got uh, a fingertip on it, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. And of course, England went out to bat and actually needed 250, something like that. 255, uh, yeah. Yeah, it went off like a train but couldn't carry it on. Had they got Rackerman out earlier in the piece, then they might have had a real go at that and that would have been a fantastic result having conceded 500 runs in the first innings who knows what could have happened after that okay so with the ashes retained uh, australia head to adelaide and they give a, a debut to the man who was called afghan the forgotten war mark war who um stroked a sublime 138 looking like a man from mars as i as i recall he was so brilliant and takes australia from 124 for five, again England had a chance to 386 all out. Boone makes a century in the second innings and uh, Gooch and Atherton's opening stand of 203. We didn't often make stands of 203 back in the day. Uh, goes most of the way to securing a, a, a draw. Mark War, uh, he took a, a while, obviously a lot longer than his twin brother to break into the Australian side, but dear me, he looked to the man of born, didn't he? It was, it was a wonderful innings. It really was. It was, it was sublime to watch. I mean, it, it's uh, ironic, of course, that he came in at the expense of his, of his twin brother, who, who'd been dropped after about 40 tests, Steve War. Always, it's almost incumbent upon him to perform. But it was, it was a sublime display of, of, of just lovely batting. Peter, I, I mean, I, I would pay good money just to watch Mark War take strike, never mind actually uh, play a shot. It was, he was such yeah. a, a beautiful batsman to watch. What, was this a surprise to the English press or did they know that there was a, an enormous talent in the family? If you play for Australia, you're going to be good, but I don't think anyone realised what we were going to be watching there. Uh, he, he, of all those, uh, 
characteristics of a very good batsman, the one that always stands out is that they just have a little bit more time. They never look hurried, uh, and that's Mark War. And and some of the shots that he, I'm not sure he played many of them in this innings, but went on to develop those shots where he flicks balls on or around off stump behind square or just in front of square on the leg side without risk. Just, as you say, separate him from the ordinary. He just looked as though he was having a net. And England, you know, Malcolm was bowling well. Fraser had got a bit of his nip. Uh, Gladstone Small, Phil de Freitas, you know, that's a decent attack. And he made he made it look easy, uh, which is what the great players do. I think it was a turning point in the match. But, of course, when England responded, Gooch was playing his, his normal way, 80-odd, I think he had. And they were building a response. Uh, unfortunately, Apperton and Lamb didn't give much of a response. Both got out for naught. Uh, Robin Smith had a 50, and then and Gower, who had been in excellent form, but uh, was in the hot water because of the uh, Tiger Moth incident, came out and played a shot, which took the last ball before lunch. Uh, the, the Aussies had put, set a trap for him with Merv Hughes on the flick, a deep square leg, and um, there was Gower flicking Craig McDermott off his legs, high into the air, straight down the throat of Merv Hughes, who actually didn't have to move at all, yeah. other than to put his hands up in the air and watch the ball fall into them. And the look on Gooch's face, by this time, of course, the uh, the rumblings of should we do it Gooch's way or should we do it Gower's way had surfaced. And so Gooch, having battled and battled his way to 80 or whatever the score was he got at that stage, had to walk back to the dressing room uh, alongside Gower, who just flicked one off his legs straight up in the air last ball before lunch. I don't think much was said at lunchtime in the dressing room between the two of them, but certainly... Well, there, this, yeah. this was all kind of a codicil to the Tiger Moth thing, really. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you go back to that, you know, the, the, uh, it was the, the Puritan approach against the roundhead approach, if you, uh, if you like. There was a lot of very, very po-faced people around at that time, too. Yeah. With the, you, know, you know, we watched this thing and thought, that's a bit of fun, isn't it? And, of course, it didn't go down very well. The, the ironic thing about that whole thing was that in order to go to the flight, they borrowed the money for the flight to pay the flight from the team manager, yeah. Peter Lush. But, but when, just to lead on from that, when they came to the test match, when Gower went into bat, the PA system played those magnificent men in their <laughs> flying machine. <laughs> there's there's a very outside chance that some listeners might not uh, be aware of the Tiger Moth incident, but it was an it was an upcountry match, wasn't it? And in uh, Carrara, in Carrara, in, uh, in on the Gold Coast, in Queensland, in Queensland, Gower and John Morris go up in a in a turboprop plane and. The, the, the best thing, Tiger Moth, yeah. yeah. And the best thing uh, about it now is, is if you put sort of Gower Tiger Moth into Google, you'll get these pictures of him grinning, <laughs> grinning from the plane as they're about to to take off. Little did he know that I, I don't think the, the grin was swiped off his face, but um, it didn't quite get the reception. Well, the irony <laughs> was it was, it was, one, so of the, it was one of the few games that England won on that tour. Yeah. <laughs> Queensland. Yeah. They've flown over the ground, haven't they, in the Tiger Moth? But not yeah. just gone up for a jolly in a plane. They actually flew over the ground. Uh, and Robin Smith, I think, scored 100. Or, and, and just as uh, uh, he was raising his bat for the celebration, <laughs> overcame Gower and Morris in this little plane. Of course, no one knew it was Gower and Morris at the time, except for Gower and Morris. Not even the other players at the ground. They had no idea. I think when they looked up, Lamb and Smith saw who it was. And I think they, you know, they probably didn't actually know, did actually know that they'd be up to something. But you're dead right. 
uh, Gao didn't have any cash on him, a bit like royalty, he didn't have any money with him. So he he worked out what he was going to do, and he asked Peter Lush, the tour manager, uh, whether he had any cash on him. And he said yes, and said, what's it for? I said, I'll tell you later. And I think he borrowed 100 Australian dollars or something like that to hire the Tiger Moth for the afternoon. I think what really upset uh, Mickey Stewart more than Graham Gooch initially was that having done that, when they got back to the airfield, they came to the ground, they got hold of a photographer and took oh, the yeah. photographer back to the airfield to have photographs of them <laughs> posting in the, in the airplane with their Biggles goggles. That didn't go down too well. Uh, <laughs> Tufnell told me that um, when, that, when all that was emerging, the truth of it, all he could hear in the back of the, behind the dressing with Mickey Stewart shouting, expletive gower, expletive gower, expletive gower, <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> And then, of course, they were fine, weren't they? they I think they were fined a thousand pounds or something like that. Yeah, a thousand pounds. It was yeah. essentially a prank, in fact, which didn't go down too well. Sadly for John Morris, however, and this may not have been the only reason, he he never wore an England shirt again after that. I mean, Gower did, but uh, Johnny Morris had blotted his copybook so badly it appeared that um, that was the end of his England yeah. career. But that you know that the, the, the fallout from that almost came in the Gower dismissal. Absolutely. You know, this kind of laissez-faire flick, this is what I do type thing. Hmm. And, it, you know, it was so obvious. The, the Aussies always used to set traps. Jeff Lawson used to bowl, occasionally bowl down the leg side for the leg side flick there, and they got caught down the leg side a little bit. So they had plans for him. And Gucci had been battling away and battling away, and then he saw this dilettante just flick one down there for no reason and walk off, and he trudged off, and as... Uh, as Peter said, I don't think they spoke for quite some time yeah. after that. When they had the disciplinary hearing afterwards, it turned into something that Gal wasn't expecting. He was expecting a rap across the knuckles and possibly a fine. But actually what then happened was Gooch started saying things to Gal like, I'm not sure your heart's really in it, David. Are you enjoying it? Yeah. Do you want to be doing this? And it turned into an examination of Gower. You know, do you still want to be an England player? Which yeah. uh, was an extraordinary uh, reaction to, to what had happened. I think as time went on, my my feeling was that the two of them, that this conflict couldn't be solved by them, that Gower became more entrenched, if you like, in in the certainty that his approach was the right approach, not necessarily only for him, but for everyone, as did Gooch. And, and, I, and, and Gooch had thoughts afterwards, I know, and wondered whether he had had done well by Gower in as much as when things have started to go wrong. Gooch did sometimes tend to get depressed and down and actually just try and work harder and harder and harder. And maybe, in hindsight, he should have been a bit more relaxed yeah. with Gower. Maybe a bit of Gower's, they say, fair, if you like, attitude or a little bit more of playing for fun might have helped. Unfortunately, in the end, the proof is in the pudding and that shot from the last ball before lunch at Adelaide pretty much reinforces Gooch's state of mind and it wasn't a pretty sight. But of course, they drew the, they drew the test. They've now drawn two tests on the bounce. I'm, I'm kind of looking back at the very start, 3-0, and thinking that's actually a result these days, isn't it? <laughs> You'd be happy with that, wouldn't you? You'd be taking the positives. You'd be taking yeah. the positives. So um, they go to the, the whacker for the fifth test. Was it the flyer of, of legend then, or has it slowed down a bit? It was still going through then. Maybe not quite as much as it did uh, ten years previously. It was still going through. You know, England. It's almost like they they used it all up in the previous two tests and that, and they didn't really compete that well in in that test match. It's my my memories of it. Um, I had a roundabout way of getting there actually to to Perth because all the one day and stuff had gone on. I I 
I went up to Alice Springs, and then I, then I took the train from Adelaide to Perth the, uh, on the Indian Pacific. It was a 36-hour train journey across the Nullarbor Plain, 400 miles of dead mm. straight track, no tree. Nullarbor, of course, is what it, exactly what it says. Perth, Perth went through. They got, they got bowled out by, by Craig McDermott there. Yeah. Um, now, th- th- those are the two prime bowlers in the series, Bruce Reed and uh, uh, Craig McDermott. I only played two tests, uh, Craig McDermott, uh, in that series. But he got, what did he get, 20 wickets, I think, something like that? Yeah, he got 8 for 97 in the yeah. first innings. I mean, he was genuinely quick, wasn't he, McDermott? He well, wasn't, he wasn't express, not express quick, but he was quick enough. You didn't need to be express quick. It's a, it's a myth about the wacker that you needed to, to be really fast to get wickets at the wacker. What you needed to do was to be able to utilise the conditions. And if the, if the Fremantle doctor's blowing, you can swing the ball there. But the, it's, the, it's the pitched up balls that get the wicket. It's the driving the batsman back that creates that opportunity. You don't get bounced out at, at the whacker. You get, you get bowled out. The, it's, it's a myth. But it does carry through there, obviously. And the, and the, the, the ball seems to float to the slips. You know, the, one of the best bowlers that uh, we'll have seen at, uh, at the whacker. You think, think you know, we remember we got bowled out by, by Mitchell Johnson there once. Yeah. And everything's on Mitchell Johnson. But actually, the real bowling in that game came from Ryan Harris yeah. and Ryan, Ryan Harris was exactly the sort of bowler that Terry Alderman used to be there, a bit quicker but, but that Terry Alderman type bowler who drove them back and then, and then bowled the sucker ball, it was, it was just wonderful bowling and that's kind of what Craig McDermott did there. Did England ask for it a little bit because, you know, laudable player that he is, Phil De Freitas is not a test match number 7 I think that, I mean by then of course there was no Fraser, uh, Angus yeah. Fraser his hip had, had had gone and they didn't have anyone else I mean they didn't want to play John Morris obviously and as an extra batter so they Chris put Lewis had gone in as well hadn't he Chris Lewis had gone home I think yes that's Chris right Francis. yeah so they were, they were well I mean they were exhausted I think I think Mike's right the fact is they'd given everything in those like, the previous two test matches and done very well to come away with two draws having lost the first two and there just wasn't anything left in the tank Phil Newport played in that match. Well, yeah. well done, Phil, for getting in the side and, and a brilliant exponent of uh, English swing conditions, but not for me at the Wacker. And I suppose what you could draw from that match, as uh, as the batting of Matthews had in the previous one, was that Australia just got more runs from their tail. I mean, England were bowled out for 2 4 4. Australia got, what, three hundred, just over 300. But again, they were. Two thirty for seven, or uh, so. Had had the tail not wagged again, there. Greg Matthews got runs again then, I think, and also Ian Healy did. So you know, had had England got in uh, on reasonably level terms after the first innings, who knows how that might have developed? But they conceded a first innings deficit. Second innings, they went out to bat, and I think they were. They just they just gone. I think that the, the rigors of the tour of touring Australia, as I say, if everything goes right and everyone stays fit, it's hard enough. But you lose your captain, and then you lose your Alan Lamb, one of your better players out there, and then Fraser goes, and then Lewis goes, and then you, you know, you, you're, you're on that pitch at the Wacker. I mean, obviously, professional pride and everything demands that you give of your best. I just think they were they were gone. I think they were they were, they were there for the taking by them. Gooch Lamb and Fraser, you know, only played one test together yeah, in that series, right. and they were they were fundamental, you know, along with Atherton and Smith and Devon Malcolm. They were fundamental to the success of that side. Gooch didn't play the first test. Lamb didn't play two of the three. Gus didn't play three of five. Yeah, um, you know, it's just a complete disruption of all they were 
they were trying to do, irrespective of everything else. That was just not helpful. Well, if you if you cast your, the clock back twelve months to how well they did in, in West Indies, Gooch and Lamb and Malcolm were three of the key players in that uh, yeah. in that success. But I think they did go to Australia with hope that if everyone had, had, had played to their best, they had a proper chance. But things didn't turn out that way. And once you get behind in Australia, it's a very very long way back. Well, it was 20 years wait for England to win an Ashes uh, series in Australia. So that shows the extent of the task that lay before them. But they lost 3-0 and they only won two of their eight ODIs. And England returned tail between their legs, having not so much relinquished the Ashes as the Australians having held the Ashes again. Well, that concludes our look at the 1990-1991 Ashes Tour. My thanks go to our guests, Peter Hayter, Mike Selvey and Pat Murphy, from whom we heard earlier. We'll be back soon with another episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, tweet us at CrickShow80s90s. That's at CrickShow80s90s. Thank you for listening.